Hello, and uh, welcome to the Monolith Medium Podcast. This is Brett Hoy. Um, Today we're going to be doing something a little bit different. Um, I had a few things that were on my mind that I wanted to talk about, but I kind of shifted things because um, on Thursday it was Stanley Kubrick's birthday. And so I realized, wait a second, maybe I actually do have a lot to say about Stanley Kubrick. What I end up doing is I end up talking about uh, my top three favorite Stanley Kubrick films, uh, giving the reasons why, and uh, basically giving passionate hopefully coherent explanations as to what makes uh, Kubrick such an interesting and important filmmaker for literally any cinephile out there. Um, So without further ado, here's my top three. Stanley Kubrick. Okay, so actually when i started this podcast i never intended on it kind of being a podcast you know where we talked about our favorite films but i have to admit that i absolutely love to do this this is one of my favorite things to do is to talk about my favorite films and um considering yesterday was uh stanley kubrick's birthday yesterday um i'm recording this on a friday you may listen to this later i decided you know how about i take the next the next podcast and just kind of discuss my favorite Stanley Kubrick movies. But not only just discuss that, kind of go into why, um, tell you kind of like what's on my mind with them. So I'm going to give you guys the top three of my favorite Stanley Kubrick movies. And I'm going to kind of go into a little bit of detail about why. Um, and I would love to hear comments, feedback about like whatever, you know, you think the uh, the best Kubrick film is and, and why as well, because why is incredibly important with Kubrick. Um, as we'll get into, why is probably the most important question. I think for me, Stanley Kubrick is a kind of an interesting character because, I mean, like he's like the ultimate, like, you know, cult cinema hero. I say cult and I'll explain why in a second because like Stanley Kubrick, uh, you know, he died in 1999. It was basically... Like, I didn't have any of my real life lived, as in, like, I wasn't very conscious of film, certainly, at the time when he died, and so he was never a public figure in my life. And going back, you know, all the things that you hear about him are that he's kind of like this, you know, you know eccentric uh, director, and I say eccentric, uh, maybe I'm being a little bit kind. Um, he was really difficult sometimes, is what it sounded like. I think he has that reputation. And I know that he um, was not too much of a public figure, kind of like during his heyday as well. Um, This is all really interesting because, again, like, Stanley Kubrick has this weird um, kind of uh, charisma about him, I guess, you know, in in this era at least, as being, you know, one of the best filmmakers of all time, you know. You know, we hold him in different esteem than we do you know, like the Spielbergs and the Coppolas of the world. Um, And it's because he is so different, because he's so Kubrick. Um, But again, he is like, you know, he's he's an icon of pop culture as well, in in a way. He's like the biggest, you know, cult director of all time, Um, which is its own, you know, strange thing. You know, you know, you could be kind of a guy who's making these kind of, you know, weird, I don't even know how to describe them, but just kind of like strange uh versions of you know war films strange versions of horror films which is strange to say but like he was just able to do so many different things and diversify so much and he has he's become basically you know a a cult cinema hero you know he's really just like you know he's not genrefied at all he's he's a he's a lover of all cinema and he's a hero of all cinema it's kind of weird when you go back and you look at kubrick's career 
you start realizing that, you know, like he kind of had a little bit of a, you know, touch the monolith moment um, himself. He wasn't, you know, like, uh, again, someone like a Spielberg who was just on fire when he started. You know, his first films were just, you know, they took off and were like, you know, they defined basically an era. Kubrick had this kind of, you know, weird uh, oeuvre of like films from, you know, Again, when you look back at it, there you know, like there's the killing, there's uh, killer's kiss, and uh, fear and desire. And I, I mean, I remember the first time that I saw uh, Day of the Fight, which is one of his first uh, documentary short films, and I was just thinking, man, is this is this Kubrick? It's like you know, you can't really see the man behind it, which is just really bizarre. And there's like I think one moment in there because it's basically twins uh, in this in this documentary. It's basically twins. So there's like this kind of like weird moment that I'm like, oh, maybe that's Kubrick living in there. But overall, I mean, like his early career was defined by, you know, really sticking to, to genre things. Again, The Killing is the best example. It's a very noir movie and uh, it's very noir-esque and doesn't kind of break out of those bounds, the, the ways that we imagine like a Kubrick movie doing. And so kind of like he did. He had this kind of like, I think, you know, touch the monolith moment where he was able to kind of expand his his repertoire of like what he could do with filmmaking. And he did that. I think his first film where he really did that was Paths of Glory. Um, and we'll talk about that here in a minute. But I just think it's interesting to kind of see that, you know, that there's this director who is just so we, we think of him as this kind of um, you know, iconic artist and, and very eccentric and very, you know, like unique in just an endless amount of ways. But at the end of the day, when you look back at his his career, it wasn't always like that. You know, he, he did start off more conventionally. Um, and I think that's something to kind of at least bring up when we're talking about the, the legend of uh, Kubrick. So, Okay, I want to kind of get into my top three here um, and give the reasons why. I'm only doing three because I feel like if I was just going to rank every single Kubrick movie, it would end up being kind of like a useless dialogue. I think kind of, you know, portioning out exactly what I feel like is my favorite, at least at this moment in history, um, is probably more valuable uh, to a discussion overall than just a discussion of like literally every single Kubrick film. And I'll get into th- some things that are very uh, Kubrickian within these three, but I just kind of wanted to give a reason why I'm only going with the top three. But the first one that we're talking about is the aforementioned Paths of Glory. Paths of Glory is like an interesting film because it doesn't really live in the same era as the other Kubrick films, really. I think there's there's like this kind of like, you know, pre-2001 phase where, you know, he was... He was making black and white movies, which, you know, that actually is a really important thing to a lot of people that they're that black and white movies were being made. I, I say that meaning that like people will either avoid or go towards them because they're black and white and they do have they have their own certain feel. Um, and it's certainly not only just that it, it's, you know, Paths of Glory is like a different style of acting in a way, too, you know, like especially in comparison to every other one of his like really, you know, like Kubrickian films, you look at. Paths of Glory and you see like Kirk Douglas and that acting style that we're talking about there contrasts really heavily with pretty much everything after 2001. It contrasts really heavily with uh, uh, Dr. Strangelove as well, but that's for different reasons because Dr. Strangelove is, you know, absurd. Um, but there is, there's, there's Paths of Glory is, just feels so separate from the rest of kind of like the Kubrick um, archive, if you will. But the reason why I love the film so much is because it is probably one of the most perfect war films ever made. I think that Paths of Glory does something that 
a lot of American war films don't do, and they don't want to do it um, because of just kind of the national, you know, tenor towards towards the military. And there's no reason to be anti-military, and these films are not anti-military at all, but what they do is they don't shy away from what war really is. I think that when we're talking about war, and especially in the 1950s, we were still kind of going through that phase where we realized that war was absolutely terrible. <laughs> I mean, everybody after the World Wars knew that. But if you think about it kind of in, you know, like pre-World War One era, people didn't really have the same ideas of what war was. It was, you know, this really honorable thing to, to live for and die for the state. Um, and and that that kind of culture had died a lot at that point after world war one world war two we realized that just you know massive amounts of people have died you know like more people died in days during world war one than they did during the entirety of the civil war you know so so people realized that the human cost of war was so great but what paths of glory does is it takes that kind of that you know what we talk about you know who are we fighting for we're fighting for this you know the state and everything we're fighting for all these grand things and then you realize that on the back end there are these personal egos of the generals and there are these there's all these things kind of governing what actions to take and you realize that the you know war not only does it does the act of like actual fighting and killing you know have a have a real cost on kind of in a human way um about, you know, like, you know, less people, you know, like as in someone actually dying, but it has a cost on the way that we treat others as well. And so in Passive Glory, we see this kind of behind the scenes where these generals are, you know, using these battles to, to kind of, you know, like push their own reputation and, and, you know, and push their own career as well. And they're willing to use the lives of all these men to, uh, to do it. And we see that, you know, a lot of ways in, in the film, and I'm not going to go into great detail with it, but I, I think that we see that in a lot of different ways. And it's so relevant, I think, to now is even now it's still so relevant. You know, like the way that we use the military now is it's a huge economic gain. Um, the military is incredibly important and integral to kind of American society. But at the same time, the way that we do use the military is the exact same and that and that theme that we're playing on and really i mean it's not even just a theme it's it's, you know it's a plot point kirk douglas literally argues with generals about this that's still something that lives in our society today and it's so important i think to go back and see that in the context of kind of you know world war one world war two uh and that's we see a lot of kubrick in that and the way that it works but where we see kubrick the most and what i think is probably his best scene that he's ever made like the best scene uh, Kubrick ever did was actually in Paths of Glory, and it's at the very end where we see, you know, the the maitre d of this bar bring out a woman, a German woman that's been captured, and she is displayed in front of all these Allied forces who are, you know, wolf whistling and and screaming and yelling at her to start singing because they want to be entertained. She again, she's a German woman, a slave, and she's crying and terrified, and when she starts singing. She's singing a song uh, by it, not by. It's called the the Faithful Hussar. I'm sure I'm saying that incorrectly, but the Faithful Hussar, which is a song again of love and grief, and these these soldiers recognize that, and they recognize the love and the grief in the song, and that ends up just like you know tearing them apart. And they start crying and they they start singing along, and I think 
paths of glory what it does in that moment is you know it it, it it's it's kind of like a whole indictment of war, you know, <laughs> in a way it's, you know, it's from the top down, you know, from, from the top, we see that it's just generals using people. And then we see at, you know, at the bottom here, we see all of these forces who realize at the end of the day that they're, they're, you know, they realize the cost of it when you kill someone, that there's humanity there too. And that despite all of our kind of like national allegiances, you know, something, yeah, war is terrible for everybody involved. And then War Film number two is actually you know, my second favorite Kubrick film, uh, Full Metal Jacket. And it's interesting. I didn't, you know, when I was putting together this list and choosing my top three, I didn't really think that I would do two war films. And I certainly don't think that Kubrick is a, like, a war director. And it's crazy to kind of see that. You don't think of Kubrick as kind of, you know, a, a war film director. But, you know, when I was putting together his list, I realized, wait a second, like, two of the three films are war films. And I think there's a really interesting why here. Uh, the reason I think why I love Kubrick's war films so much are just because he focuses so much on theme and concept and he and and on people. And there's there's this trap that I think a lot of war films fall into where they kind of get this they, they kind of get this idea that to to show the how terrible war is, it requires just massive scale. You know, that we need to see, you know, 400,000 people, you know, like we need to see all these different things. And at the end of the day, like the tragedy of war isn't just uh, in the body count, you know, it's it's in it's in each individual life. And I think the most effective way in portraying that really is to focus on these, you know, individual people. And, and in that way, Paths of Glory and Full Metal Jacket, the reason they're so effective is is kind of the opposite of that is and it's not about scale at all you know it's 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 the polar opposite of that um i think apocalypse now is kind of in the same you know thing as well while there is like that one huge napalm scene at the beginning of the film most of the film takes place you know in this kind of mental state of a single character or what ends up being kind of like a troop of five that slowly dwindles down and and that is really an important focus, um, I believe, for war films, and it's something that I think Full Metal Jacket and Paths of Glory display perfectly. And so, you know, like, Paths of Glory is kind of this, like, exploration of this, like, you know, of, of war at this kind of, like, distant level where we see these, like, huge ideas at play, um, and we see, you know, like, the generals that are, you know, like, the whole battle that... Um, Kirk Douglas has with his generals is something that's, you know, metaphorical to like so many things today, maybe things he couldn't even have predicted. But then also, you know, the scene at the end where we're all, you know, we realize we're all human, those kinds of things, that is really important. But again, it's kind of like this distant thematic exploration, which I think is really interesting in the era because of the style of acting. It, it didn't really allow that close personal interaction that you get later. And that is exactly what you get in Full Metal Jacket. There is that film is incredibly personal and it's 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 in your face and it is each character is very extreme and the style of acting is very different and so the style of directing has to be different as well and there is a huge difference in those films but the thing that ties them together is the focus on humanity and the focus on not scale and not kind of the the immensity of war but on just the inhumanity of it. And that's a very different thing than you get with a lot of war films these days. And so, like, Full Metal Jacket and Paz of Glory are kind of like two sides of the same coin. 
And again, it's really interesting to kind of say that in context because, again, you know, like you do not think of Kubrick as a war film director, but I think that he pulls it off so perfectly. And, and, And let me give you an example of something kind of the opposite of what I'm talking about. There, there are so many films that do not take the time to really dig in and, like, understand, you know, the trauma of war in a way that I think is, like, necessary. I think it's required of the genre. It should be required of the genre. And this may be kind of a hot take, but, like, Dunkirk, for example. Dunkirk is technically just an excellent film just on its on its face it's just absolutely beautiful and the 70 millimeter is just absurdly complicated for them to do and so it was an amazing amazing accomplishment the sound is great the score is great all these things but these things distract from what a war movie should be about and i think that there is this really odd kind of like line to toe with war films and and this may be just a personal thing here but there is an ethical i think you know contract that you're signing when you make a war film that it needs to be about the people there are all these innocent players and in war and and when we and when we condense them down to these or i don't even say condense them it's kind of the opposite if we extrapolate them out to these you know like massive battalions of people instead of you know really doing our job to focus on the individuals then i think what ends up happening here is that we get we get we we forget what it's like you know we forget what war is like you know as if we could really understand but we forget what the point of this war film should be about and at the end of the day there's heroics that happen in film all the time but these raw raw moments should only be taken in in context with the just absolute horror of what's going on and getting back to dunkirk in this way all of these technically masterful things, and they truly are technically masterful, they, they, they take us farther away from the truth of what war is. And so in displaying the plot and the action of what's going on, Nolan ends up completely missing the point of why the plot was so important. And... There are key moments where there are thematic breaks that I think are really interesting and important, specifically when they're back in England and they're on the train and they're reading the paper. There's some moments in them that I really like. There's the moment where um, Killian Murphy's on the boat and he doesn't want to go back. These things are interesting. But overall, I think that there is. There's just this missing... There's this missing piece. And getting back to Kubrick in this case, Kubrick is able to communicate these immensely important things in war films and he's able to do it because of his focus and because of the way that he chooses to to write i guess i mean i don't know if actually i should not say that i do not know if he wrote either either of those movies but the way that he handled um both of those movies he just he's able to take these massive subjects and condense them down to the things that are actually truly important and I shouldn't say that, you know, every war film should be the same. I think that there is sort of, uh, in my mind, there is um, kind of a something we need to honor in war films that we may not need to honor in other subjects. Um, and so I, I think I'm more passionate about the way that people make war films than, you know, pretty much any other film. 
Um, but but this is why I think I love Kubrick so much. And so maybe he is a great war film director. You know, it's kind of hard to say exactly because you don't think of him like that. But he really is. It's, it's an incredible accomplishment, both of those films, that he's able to accomplish war from both sides, from this kind of cold distance and from this just terribly brutal and inhumane center. And then finally, my favorite um, Kubrick film, um, 2001 A Space Odyssey. I think it's kind of obvious that that was coming. Maybe not. I don't know. It's kind of hard to tell exactly where kind of the general consensus is. I think that there are a lot of people out there that would choose The Shining as their favorite Kubrick movie. I think it's probably the most iconic Kubrick film. Kubrick film. Um, but I don't, I don't think that there's any reason that I want to put anything else on here other than 2001. And I think one of the reasons why is because Kubrick really did have this phase, what I was talking about earlier, where he was making these these films that were good, but they, you know, like Lolita and Spartacus, um, and then before that, Paths of Glory. Paths of Glory is incredible, but I'm just saying there's a very different type of film that he's making there. And then 2001 represents, honestly, like, you know, Kubrick's Touch the Monolith moment where he kind of had this thing where he just exploded onto the scene as Kubrick and not just another director. This is really important. I think this is one of the things that defines 2001 so much is because it's such a freaking director, you know, tour movie. You know, nobody else in the entire world could make 2001. It's a genre-breaking movie. And the reason why that is, I mean, you think, I think about kind of the best films that I've ever seen, and usually what they are are films that take, like, a genre and then just, like, make it their own. One of the things that I love is um, uh, There Will Be Blood. There Will Be Blood is a film that is, you know, historical drama, um, and it's just absolutely terrifying. I, I truly think that there is horror genre in There Will Be Blood, and, and that's what makes it such a transcendent movie. And on that kind of same note, 2001 is perhaps, like, the most, you know, bold sci-fi film ever made. And it's, it's hard to encapsulate that exactly, what that means in 2018, because we are just so used to having it kind of in our, you know, in our repertoire of, you know, like the American canon, you know, like to, to know film is to see 2001, to know, you know, you need to see that movie to be, you know, a cinephile. And so 2001 is just this immensely important movie, and we end up, I think, taking it for granted just because of what it is. I mean, I think one of my biggest dreams that, you know, I wish that I, I wish that I could just go back in time and go to the theater in 1968 and see it and just feel the just scale of what's going on here. And there are so many reasons why it's, you know, my favorite Kubrick movie. Um, it was the first film that I was exposed to with Kubrick. Uh, I remember the first time that I watched it and it blew me away that a movie could just dictate how you watch it on its own terms. It was not only paced like slowly, but there were no like the way that scenes are constructed. It was just bizarre. There's like just a few scenes in that movie and you were again, you're forced to watch the movie on its own terms and to digest it on its own terms. Even consider, I remember I was watching it the first time, and when they see the monolith and the people walk down to that crater, um, this is when they're on, I think it's uh, one of the moons. Um, either way, they go down there, and then just like just ridiculously loud, just like uh, tone. It's like really high-pitched tone. And it's so, you know, off-putting and 
you know, horrible and, and horrific. And again, it just forces you over and over to watch it on its own terms. But it's just absurdly beautiful and full of just, you know, of, of theme and concept and, you know, ambiguous plot, which ambiguous plot on its face is not necessarily a good thing. But like the best thing you can say about 2001 is that in its ambigu- ambiguity, you're just completely, you want to you want to be a part of it or at least I do I want to be a part of that plot I want to to know more about it and I want to be kind of like enveloped in it even in its ambiguity and even in its slow pace it's just absolutely gorgeous so 1960s late 1960s and 1970s film just has a feel I was talking recently about this that there's just like a feel to that film stock it's such a beautiful you know such a beautiful era and 2001 was able to do this these things with practical effects that are just you know outstanding and you know really really incredible and you know there it's still filled with all of these kind of you know like aesthetics that are you know just so heavily centered in 1960s and 1970s film like the opening sequences with you know the the murals on the wall and you know like you know it's as in as in we're you know back in uh you know australopithecus days or whatever you want to call them and and the that all being shot on a stage it just it feels so right you know it feels so just of the era it's 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 fantastic and and that's what sets it is, is, you know, it's just this, it's a 1960s film that just breaks all expectations. It's incredible that way. And, you know, when it plays by its own rules, I mean, just there is a scene um, that is almost completely silent that just gives me goosebumps every time I've seen it. It's the, it's the scene where one of the uh, cosmonauts, one of the astronauts is outside of the ship and he is knocked out into space and we view him silently spinning into space and it's just completely silent and I remember seeing that the first time and it just terrified me to use space that way and to and to have this just quiet really you know like diminutive you know program become this just evil you know like or at least our perception this evil presence it's a horror movie you know it's it's horrific to see that happen and that one scene I should say it's a horror movie and and that that one scene I think about all the time and it's a completely silent scene and again 2001 just plays by its own rules and so kind of when I when I wrap up talking about you know Kubrick in general the reason he is so effective is because he was a singular personality because he was so unique in virtually every aspect of his production. I mean, you can't... It'd be one thing if he was a genre filmmaker who was just incredible at making, you know, horror or something, or if he was a David Lynch type who was always making basically just David Lynch movies and he was doing this. But Kubrick was an amazing director, not because... He was amazing at directing, you know, like blank type of film. He was able to take every type of film, basically, and then just like push it to its limit in an amazing way. I mean, like The Shining, Dr. Strangelove, Paths of Glory, Full Metal Jacket, Barry Lyndon. I mean, Barry Lyndon, a film that is a historical drama, is just, it's it's like got the strangest tone. It is so just like unexpectedly funny, but just absolutely beautiful. And I mean, it may not be the best historical drama ever made, but it's certainly a Kubrick one. And it, it deserves to be mentioned 
in any one of those conversations. And that's, again, what makes Kubrick so important to film is not that he was a director that was able to make genre films and not because he specifically loved film, but because he was the quintessential storyteller. When we talk about Steven Spielberg, we're talking about a guy who has made most of his career on doing a specific type of film and who cared specifically about a, a very like and not even it's not niche anymore at all but he was it was kind of niche in his own ways you know the camera moves that he did and the way that he told stories was so specific and he did his stories the way that he did them you know and that's not to make a take a knock at steven spielberg i think that there's going to be a lot of people who hate that i say that based on saving private ryan and schindler's list but he made his career that way whereas kubrick was able to do so many different things and just constantly evolve and then treat every subject in the way that it needed to be treated and so i absolutely hate this term but he's a storyteller i mean he really is i i dislike using that term because so often it doesn't adequately describe anybody it's a completely useless term but at the same time kubrick is a storyteller he's able to get to the heart of what every story needs and he's able to describe that in incredible visual accuracy. And he's able to do that in virtually any genre. Um, and he did that with film. And we're all for the better. So thank you guys for um, listening to me ramble about uh, Kubrick. Next week we'll be back with a podcast talking about a specific film. And uh, hopefully we'll have a couple guests on here. If you like this podcast, go and subscribe to us on our website. You can do so uh, via any of the journal entries um, at the bottom of the page. You can do so at the reviews page, any of the reviews. You can do so on any of the podcasts. But don't just stop there. Go like us on Facebook. Go follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Um, and on specifically on Instagram, we're going to be giving, you know, like three times a week, just some kind of glancing film analysis uh, via photos. It's a lot of fun. I love putting it out. Follow us there. And uh, this has been Brett Hoy with Monolith Medium. Thank you.